Welcome to the Revolution Church Podcast. Good morning, good morning, everyone. Welcome to another week of Revolution Minneapolis. Um, we got a we got a packed house here today. I want to shout out to my friend Scotty, who's here all the way from. His arms are tired because he flew in from Switzerland. I'm just kidding. I had to, I had to say that joke. Uh, no, actually, uh, they were in Louisiana for about a week before this week and a half. And now he, he came in on Friday. I'm not going to lie. I was like a kid in a candy shop when I picked him up at the airport on Friday. It, and I will have to put Scotty on the spot. And he did an audible, oh, when he saw me at the airport. So it was cute. We, we were like little long lost friends that saw each other. Um, what was this? The first time we've seen each other face to face since 2016? Like June or July of 16? Yeah, it's like five years. Uh, we talk on the phone all the time, but it's different being in face-to-face. Um, other, I want to do a shout-out um, to Falling Knife Brewery with this nice swag that I'm wearing here. Um, my, they had a party yesterday. like They're a brewery in northeast Minneapolis, and they opened, they've only been open about 18 months, but they uh, obviously the pandemic happened, and they had to shut down like most places. So they wanted to finally have a party. So they did, and then they had food trucks, um, other, you know, they had bands playing and all that stuff, and then they had vendors selling stuff, and I actually told Amanda to reach out to them, see if she could be one of the vendors, so she linked their her Etsy site to her Instagram, and they reached out and said that they really liked her stuff and so that she could go. Um, so that was yesterday. She made some good money doing that. They actually really liked us. And they said this is they're going to try to do this like three or four times a year. And they might do another one in the fall. And they want Amanda's shop to come back. So that's really cool. I'm proud of proud of my wife. Um, and it's just weird. Like it's to, to say like a brewery is kind of like a family. But there's such nice people there. Treated everyone nice. Gave us free drink wristbands, which could have been problematic for, pe- <laughs> for people. Um but yeah, so that was that was a blast, um, and it was really cool. There was a barbecue place that was there, and we kind of like bartered with them. I was like, "Hey, I want this. I want your ribs," and they're like, "Your money's not good here, but I want to come back over here, and then if your wife could give us something." And so it was just like it's really kind of cool. It just felt like family, and like their kids were playing with our kids, and I'm like, "This is a brewery. This feels like a family." So it was just really bizarre, but in a good way, if that makes sense. Um, so I'm going to try to get through the second part of my talk quickly because we have a special announcement um, to say at the end. Um, so everyone in the know needs to know, like everyone here in our group. I don't want to say congregants because it just sounds too churchy. Uh, but everyone here, um, and then I will even say maybe Jay and Caleb in their revolution might talk about it too today. So... I've been texting Caleb about it. So the second part of Jesus and John Wayne, part two. Last week, I want to put this up here. I think Amanda had it in the show notes last week. But, you know, this book is phenomenal. It's The whole name of the book is Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. Um, 
I can't highly recommend that book enough. Uh, it doesn't go fully in in why people voted for Trump, but it's kind of more of like a dissection of the rise of evangelicalism in America. And with and I'll, I said it last week, and I'll say it again. This author, she's a church historian, and so when you're a church historian, you got to look at the facts. You got to look at what's out there. She's not biased or screwing whatever, and she's actually teaches at a conservative evangelical university, um, Calvin College. So it's not like she's this uber liberal trying to make evangelicals just look like bad and garbage. She's kind of like that. They made them. They made themselves look like that in the first place. So, the second part I'm going to talk about, and wrapping that up, is more of the toxic max- masculinity, um, the rise of that within the evangelical movement, and just how that kind of gave rise to Trumpism, and not just Trumpism, but just this. Well, Trumpism and this new whatever far right we have going on in, in, in America right now. Um, so she wrote a pretty, most of her chapters are about, I don't know, 20, 30 pages, but this chapter that she kind of started, I would say almost like the second half of the book is like, I want to say that I want to get it right. Um, bear with me a second. Uh, I think it's, where is it? Yes, um, pretty much like um, it was like warrior, warrior, warriors dressed in camo. And more or less what this chapter was about was the rise of really uh, men-centric, men-only uh, groups. And she was like, they're not inherently bad. If there's like, oh, like a men's group at church want to go out and get coffee or something or you know, like a women's group at a church if they want to, like, sew or knit. She's like, we're not talking about that. But there was this rise of uh, promise keepers. And I remember, gosh, I was probably, like, 13 or 14, and I had a friend at a church whose dad was like, hey, I got tickets to this promise keepers event here in Minneapolis. And these, these promise keeper events were huge productions. I mean... You, they weren't at churches. They were at, like, arenas. So the one that I went to, the Promise Keepers, was uh, down at the Metrodome when the Metrodome was there. And I kid you not, everyone, I it was weird to see, like, 60,000 men crammed into, and, like, young boys crammed into an arena that you watch football or baseball being played in. And I don't remember everything, really a lot that was said, but when I was reading this book... I would remember, like, my brain went back to that part of of that Promise Keepers, and I was like, little did I know at the time that it was very cultish, <laughs> that, <coughs> excuse me, that I was, what I was hearing, but some of the things that I remember hearing w- was just how men need to take back the church, men need to put their wives in the so-called gender, you know, places, like, I need to go out as a man and provide for my family financially. I need to go work. I need to do this. And that women need to go back to kind of like, I don't know, like the leave it to beaver kind of mentality and world of the women stay at home, the women cook, clean, do all these things. And it was in a lot of ways uh, 
60,000 men kind of in this warrior type mentality and they kept using like milita- militaristic language like put on your armor uh, not even like the armor of god but just like put on your armor we're going into battle like men this and men that and looking back at it now as almost a 40 year old i'm like what kind of garbage was that you know that they were prom- promoting and it wasn't just i mean there's thousands and thousands of men and i forget um, there's so many names she threw out there, but one or two of the people who really advocated for this. And there was a couple men, obviously people like Falwell, Robertson, James Dobson, a lot of these people who we attribute to the rise of the religious right, moral majority. They were the ones that not at first spearheaded this because with any kind of ministry or any kind of group, there's going to be infighting and bickering. And I think Dobson didn't really like Promise Keepers at first because he wasn't involved with it, per se, so he didn't have power. That's really what it was. Is like He didn't like what was saying, but there was all this like infighting and bickering. But the one thing that they agreed on, even within all this infighting and bickering within Promise Keepers, was this message of this warrior type of um, mentality, this putting... putting, putting um, putting women in their place, so to say. And it's just reading this, it was so revolting to be like where we see a lot of, a lot of progress within Christianity and, and the inroads. But you look back at like the nineties and early two thousands with, with these things. And it's just revolting. And I find it quite interesting that there was these like promise keepers doesn't exist anymore. I don't think. But you have these organizations like Promise Keepers and other these huge men like ministries. And I'm super glad and excited that they've fallen apart or away. But why, why, my question is, why did that rise to power? Why, why did we have a part of Christianity that was like, hey, you know what? That's a great idea. Let's have, it's still going. Okay. Scotty told me that it's still going. So, um, that's, that's uh, petrifying. <laughs> it's probably a militia. Yeah, you're probably right, Vicky. Very, very, very accurate. It's a, probably a militia. And what's really creepy about these groups, though, and just look it up. Just go go home and obviously delete it because you don't want that always on your search profile. But, like, search, like, these, like, groups, like Promise Keepers and others because what Vicky was saying, too, is, is creepy. And a lot of these people are probably militias or they get in these weird mentalities and that's a lot of reasons why you saw trumpism and and all that so i just want to kind of bring up a couple people's names like i said i didn't get everything said last week um and i want to give us more time for our announcement at the end but a couple people i wanted to to talk about that really have um pushed uh the this kind of man-centric mentality and who are still doing it currently the first one is james dobson i maybe talked about him a little bit last week um and i didn't know this until reading reading this book but james dobson um was not trained in like pastoral stuff he was actually a licensed uh counselor i think or therapist so he was um had a big practice out in california where he was from and and I don't I think the guy's like in his eighties or nineties right now. 
I, I could be. And um, he, I think he saw like in the seventies and eighties, I think he saw a lot of what he would consider uh, men losing their grip in ministry, men losing their grip in uh, church, church life, church society. And what I said last week is a lot of this purity culture, a lot of this rise, and because evangelical Christianity in America, I can't speak for outside of America, but American evangelicalism, in, in my opinion, is a relatively new thing compared to like the Catholic Church, compared to, um, you know, even a lot of like Methodist traditions and stuff. Like, yes, there's been Baptist Church for a long time, but I think this kind of like amalgamation of all these churches are under this evangelical, you know, yeah, non denominational Pentecostal Baptist. Most people would call them evangelical. In, why I think a lot of people like being called evangelicals like their church is because more evangelicals are more, um, they don't deal as w- much in social justice issues. They don't deal a lot in, um, I would say, uh, social justice work or outreach. They might do, their outreach is more of like, we got to get people into the kingdom. It's more witnessing and trying to convert people where mainline denominations are mostly like, hey, we need to help the orphan, the widow, the poor, they say it, they don't always go out and do it, but at least they're making this kind of known that they want to do this. Well, anyway, Dobson, in the 60s and 70s, he saw what he calls the breakdown of the American family, the rise of divorce, the rise of um, queer people, I would say, like the LGBTQ community. Um, the he would say in others like the feminizations of men. So men being more flamboyant, men not having these gender roles. And so him and among other people took this kind of like line in the sand and no one asked them to do this. This was, no one was holding up signs like, Hey, change something in the faith, change something within Christianity. And so he did it himself and, um, he wrote a number of books. He wrote, uh, I forget, it says it in here, but a very damning book, um, about purity culture, like for purity culture, but I'm meaning damning of it's like if you had sex before you're married, you're terrible. And it was coarse. It was always women were the, the brunt of it. Like women have to be chased and, and men should be too. And they were trying to use these clobber passages of like Proverbs. What is it? Proverbs 31. What a biblical woman is and all this stuff. Uh, yeah, like a virtuous woman. So they were using all this like garbage, in my opinion, uh, clobber passages in scripture because there are there clobber passages for so many things. And I forget, but I think it was after. Oh, no. He started as a radio host too afterwards. And his radio... Um, his radio program went from like, I think like a number of thousands of listeners to like millions in a course of like three years. She says in the book, it went from like 10,000 listeners just in like his vicinity to like worldwide being broadcast to millions and millions of people. And so when you have that broadcast and men listening to it and even women, you could see how he started gaining power really, really, really quick. And then he's, you know, kept writing more, you know, more books on gender roles. He kept writing more books on purity culture. And to where I would say in the late 80s, 
90s, like James Dobson was that person. Like he was that person in the evangelical world of uh, like he was kind of like the main dude. And he actually has the campus still focus on the family. He started to focus on the family and their headquarters are still out there in, in Colorado, Colorado Springs, I think it is. And they actually say, oh, and I would be remiss to say this, hit, focus on the family. And I did not know this, but Colorado Springs, Colorado is, I would say, kind of a, I would say, a liberal state in a lot of ways, especially with, like, their laxness on, like, drugs and stuff like that. And yeah, I would, I've been to Colorado a couple of times. I would feel like it's pretty. And so what he was, and I didn't know this, but. I guess Colorado Springs is like this bastion of like conservative evangelical. It's almost like, you know, how Mormons moved out eventually to Salt Lake City. And there's so many places you go into Salt Lake City in Utah and you're like, this is like Mormon central. And it's a lot like that when you go to um, Colorado Springs is like, that's where the head of like the National Evangelical Association is at the NEA, which is a consortium of evangelical pastors and men and women kind of saying what they need to do um so yeah and but what's what's interesting is the um air force the uh, uh, the united states air force academies out there so all the men and women who want to go into the air force have to go there and he there's uh christian talks about here the author about when you go into colorado springs of course you see the mountains all around you and then there's the air force base and then like literally right across the road is focused on the family, like in their compound. And like, uh, apparently she makes this, and I've never been out there to see that, but um, apparently it's a massive, you know, campus that they have. And they bought it back in like the 80s because land was cheap, nothing was there. But she does bring up in the chapter there where um, they he had such an influence within the Air Force Academy that they would like the Air Force people and the government people would bring Dobson and his people in to talk to people about this. So you had men and women go, you know, serving our country, serving the Air Force, who were getting indoctrinated by Dobson about like, you know, about women's roles and gender roles and all this stuff. And they were saying that like at one time in like one graduating class of like 600 cadets, like over like 400 of them. Uh, kind of were more or less indoctrinated by Dobson and had these views. So you could just you could just see how it seeped into everything. And I will also say this, and I think I maybe brought it up last week too, but what really jettisoned and rocketed evangelicalism up more is that the evangelicals have really aligned themselves with political things. Um and there's this thing, a group called The Family out in D.C., where is like, they say it's hush-hush, but they don't really keep it quiet. You know, it's kind of like everyone knows that there's Masons, but, like, what do Masons do? And then you get involved, and you're like, okay, this is what Masons do, but you can't talk about it. Well, and it's a lot with, like, this family where it's politicians, it's former presidents, it's, you know, people who are in, like, the CIA, the FBI, the National Security you know, the NSA, all these things, and they're more like lobbyists in a way. Like these pastors are like, hey, we'll vote for you. We'll give you money. Our organization will give you money if you pass these laws. If you, you know, try to get this, you know, politician out of office, you know, create this scandal, all these things. 
And so Dobson has been to those. Um, uh, a lot, a lot of evangelical pastors have been there. So you, in in like I have no problem with people, denominations or churches getting involved in certain political things. Like I know the UCC, for example, is very proactive in the social justice movement, especially with like George Floyd, other things that are out, you know, the, the priests are wearing, you know, their collars, going out and standing with, you know, people of color and all these things like that. I'm fine with, but I'm not okay with organizations and churches saying, okay, we're going to, we're going to give you money. If you, you know, like you scratch our back, we scratch yours. Like you do this for us or else we're going to, you know, put you on blast and say all this stuff. Um, also what I, what she brings up, which is quite fascinating is, you know, you see the rise in like, especially the eighties of a lot of prosperity gospel people. That was a big part of the evangelical world. So prosperity gospel people, especially like Falwells, Swaggart, other people. Um, and she's like, what's really, what's interesting. And she just kind of left it. Like, I'm going to drop this as like a truth bomb. All these people preached on, you know, purity, purity culture against against um, the LGBTQ community. But a lot of these people had what the church, I don't like the language, but I'll say it for the sake, is moral failures. And it's interesting that a lot of these people who were tell- like, oh, uh, sex before marriage is wrong. Well, like, Swagger, you know, made fun of Baker, Jim Baker for all this stuff. But yet, Jim's, or, uh, Swagger got caught twice with prostitutes. Um, a lot of financial ruin that people did. Ted Haggard, who was the head of the National Association of Evangelicals, raged, and he was part of you know this rise of the religious right. He even, um, and she brings up like was the head of the huge church of like fifteen thousand people in in Colorado Springs, and he was talking about how evil it is to be gay, uh, you know all this stuff. But yet he was caught with a male prostitute and doing drugs, like doing meth or something like this. Yeah, like crystal meth. And and then it was like, oh my gosh, why you know, why why do these people get caught? And it's like it's interesting that you find all these people they're they're putting themselves up on this pedestal. And usually what happens when you put yourself up on a pedestal, you're gonna come crashing down. But what I find is fascinating is a lot of these people, what the evangelicals did even after they get caught you know they say all this bullshit and then they get caught or found out that they did this then they'll take like a year off or they'll just like ghost everyone and then they'll come back like a year or two later and be like hey i'm back and they'll still start doing their same thing and then everyone's like like evangelicals have like this really small mental part of their head where they're like oh yep this person must be rehabilitated um and now they're the same and so ted ted hager did the same thing he left his church, whatever, and now he's back pastoring some other church. I forget where she said. So I'm like, well, that's crazy. But the other person I really wanted to focus on and uh, can't stand this person is Mark Driscoll. Uh, Yeah, that's exactly. Mark Driscoll, yeah. So he, he did a church, or he planted a church called Marth Hill. And the first thing I got a little frustrated was this guy has no training to be a pastor. Uh, he he did not go to college for for being a pastor. He didn't go to seminary. How he got his job was he was at a church 
he started out there as like a youth or whatever in his because he's from washington that seattle area and he worked his way up to being a youth pastor and he wanted you know to in essence to start a church and so this church where he was at we're like we'll give you a good substantial amount of money to go plant a church in seattle and the thing what's really weird about mark driscoll is when you first look back at like the founding of like Mars Hill and why he wanted to do it. Like if people remember the emerging church movement, like he was a, 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 a person of force in that, like uh, Tony Jones, who's here locally and Doug Paget, they were, and Mark Driscoll, they were kind of like the three horsemen that were kind of pushing this of like church. We need to reimagine church churches and big, you know, like church needs to kind of go under that uh, microscope. And kind of like I've said before, like Phyllis Tickle, who was a church historian, she has a famous quote saying, the church goes through a rummage sale every 500 years where we like go in and we are like, we're going to keep a lot of the, you know, things in here, but let's, let's chuck some of the stuff out that we don't need anymore. That's just not working. And Driscoll, Paget, and, and Jones were kind of like spearheading that. There was other people like Brian McLaren and, and others too. And so, and I will say that she didn't bring up Driscoll a lot, but um, there's a um, fascinating podcast that I'm listening to that kind of helped me with this talk too, called "The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill." Um, and it's actually, and I don't like Christianity today that much, but they're the ones who did this, and it's just this telltale, like they're they're not holding any punches back. I mean, they're interviewing former pastors, they're interviewing former congregants. They're interviewing people who've been abused by him. They actually interviewed Doug Paget, Tony Jones. And my favorite quote, so in the episode that I've listened to, is Tony Jones. They're like, Mark Driscoll didn't get fired because he's not a good preacher. He got fired because he was an asshole. <laughs> and and literally, that's that's why he got fired and why he got defrocked, whatever you want to say. It's because he was an asshole, because he had this absolute power. Well, anyway... With Mark Driscoll, he started this church, and he, and why people came to it is it it was more of, in a lot of ways, you heard the term hipster. He it was like this hipster church. Seattle's you know home of grunge music, home of some great musicians. Uh, a lot of just people know about Seattle. Like you go to Portland or Seattle, it, you're like it's just like hippies in a way. It's like the hippie movement never left, you know. And so he started a church where he's like. I want, you know, people to come in who are tattooed, who, you know, like beer, goes to shows, you know, like this this was kind of like his mentality. But what was so telling in this podcast and even somewhat she brings up about Mark Driscoll was that somewhere within like the first 5 or 6 years of Mars Hill, like he kind of in essence took a sabbatical. And we all know what sabbaticals are. So, and he took this summer sabbatical and he said, I need to go find like my own theology. I need to kind of like go out in like a wilderness moment and find out who I am, what I really want this church to go and whatever. And well, what happened to him, and I'm not saying this to all Calvinists, but he went down the Calvinist rabbit trail, like hardcore. And I would say, and I'm, I'm not a huge fan of Calvin, but I'm not going to throw everything out with Calvinism. I do, I do think John Calvin said some good things. 
but by and large, I don't like him that much. Even though Scotty and I went to his gravesite in Switzerland when uh, when I was there a number of years ago, that was interesting. Anyway, so he he goes and comes back after this summer, and everyone like in the emerging church movement was like, "Whoa, like something's wrong with this dude." Like he became super misogynistic. He became super uh, gender gender role specific, and kind of how he got popular wasn't just like he was this hipster guy but he was this guy in this church you know they had worship music they had all these groups and he more or less came back and um, started cursing you know started just saying stuff that you wouldn't normally hear a pastor say from the church but that's why a lot of people liked him because he they were like this guy's swearing from the pulpit like it's different for me swearing here because we're in a bar me saying that from a pulpit you know, in a mega church, yeah, you, you don't hear that. And what I find really fascinating with Driscoll is he started preaching purity culture. He started talking about uh, there. They played clips on here, and they literally he said this from the pulpit. Mark Driscoll is he, and I don't like this word, but I'm going to use it for what he said. He's like, I'm sick and tired of men being pussified pussies. We need real men in in the world and in this church and i mean i remember listening to that just a a week or two ago and i was like how in the world did not everyone just run out of church when he said a comment like that and you hear people like clapping you hear like women cheering and i'm like what first of all that word's very derogatory to most women and i don't even say that word but i remember hearing hearing that and i'm like how is this guy so popular how is this guy so and like he would speak all over the country and not as much but he would be i remember um they were saying like he was a speaker at promise keepers one year and evangelical churches uh were booking him and it's just it's crazy to think that someone like driscoll had so much power in such a little amount of time but like we said with a lot of these people that we've seen throughout here, there is this fall that they had. And there is actually this one uh, woman who was interviewed who was on staff at Mars Hill. And there was tons of campuses. Mars Hill in Seattle was like the main Mecca. But then it's kind of like a lot of churches will have like satellite campuses all over the cities. But this woman was like his administrative assistant. And she's like, when I first started working for him, he was great. Like he wouldn't ask me to do crazy stuff, but then would invite my husband and I and my kids over for dinner would say, how are you doing? Just this great, whatever. But after like a couple years, he was power hungry and it was like, this church is mine, 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 mine. And so what he, what ended up happening is she was at like a woman's group, like a women's Bible study. And she brought up the point and she was like, or like, Mark is great, but like maybe he should have like a mentor over him so he doesn't just have all this power. Maybe I don't care if it's other men, but like he should have some group of people around him to keep him accountable. And he didn't think it was, she didn't think anything what she said was wrong. She was like, this is what we do in church. Well, a couple days later, she gets called into Mark's office and there's like this church board there. And Mark said, you're on trial for heresy. It's a heresy trial. And she was like bewildered. And she's like, what? Like, I followed him for years. Like, we loved, we loved, um, what he said and all this stuff. 
And they literally, and she was like, why am I in trial for heresy? And heresy is not a word people should throw around at all. Like, like within the church world, heresy is you're, you're saying stuff that is so blasphemous. You're saying stuff that you're literally excommunicating someone out of, 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 in a lot of, not just your church, but in Christianity in a lot of ways. If you're like, you're a heretic, you're literally saying, you're saying something so blasphemous, so out of the realm of okayness within our faith that we're going to boot you out. Like, all of it. You're blacklisted. And so, she literally gets kicked out. And all she said was, he needed to have a mentor over him. And so, she was like, she was one of many people who ended up leaving the church. And kind of what Tony Jones is like, the reason he the reason he had his failure was because of the, he was an asshole. He was power hungry. But what I find interesting, what she brings up in this book is a lot of the men, well, most of the men who helped evangelicalism get to the point of where it's at are all men and women who refuse to play nice with others, refuse to work well with each other, who um, have one one thing in mind is to, in a way, have their view of Christianity, their view of evangelical Christianity, take over the whole world. It's this, it's this and it's, let's be honest, too, it's white supremacy. Because, what, like, probably 90% of evangelicalism is white people. And and I, I know there's tons of churches, you know, black Baptist churches that I would not put into that. Um but there are a lot of people of color, like Hmong, like there's a uh, the Hmong Alliance, like which is a more conservative evangelical domination. They're huge. They're very, um, what's the word, evangelically minded. And a lot of Hmong and Asians are a part of evangelical Christianity um, because that makes sense to like how they're culturally um, back from where they're from. Anyway, so you you just see this. These, these men and women who are all the way since the 70s, 80s, and 90s who are still in power. And she, she gives a, the one negative, just personally for me reading this book, and I don't want to give it all away, is she was like, I thought she was going to kind of do a more of a blistering kind of critique on Trump. And she didn't, but she was like, everything that I've literally said in these first portions of this book is to show you why Trump got elected and why she wrote the book. Like she talks about in their introduction is like people in her students in her class were like, you know, professor, why did Trump get elected? Why did Trump get elected? Why are we in this world where Trump got to be from who he is as a person to the president of the free world? And so that's why she wrote this book. And she lays that out so beautifully about how it's, People like so many evangelicals feel like society in general are leaving them behind because we live in a society in most parts of the world where, like, yeah, like gay people, you should be treated equally. You should have rights. Um, people of color, you should be treated as a whole human being. You should have rights. You should have jobs. Like, we're against ageism and sexism, you know, all those things. And, you know, I tell people that I know who are evangelical, I'm like, you guys have lost the war on abortion and you lost the war on gay gay rights you just lost and i'm not trying to say that in a negative way i'm just saying you're still fighting for that but our our like our culture and our country is like 
This is what we're doing. And the rest of the world has done it decades ago, sometimes centuries ago. But yet the evangelical movement is like, we're so hurt that people aren't kind of buying into this. Then they're throwing money into politicians. They're throwing money into organizations that are behind the doors, literally changing the out, the, the outlook of evangelicalism. And what I find, she brings this up, and I find this really interesting as well, is conservative Christianity, like John Wayne, for instance. We look at John Wayne, and she brings up Ronald Reagan. She has a chapter on Ronald Reagan. These were like brutish, tough men who, you know, they were in the military. They they fought for our country. Uh, there was a time where, like, all of our presidents had to be in in the military in some sort of capacity. And... Now you've seen over time where that doesn't mean anything to them, where it's it's less about having good morals, and it's more about let's push our agenda through this evangelical agenda. And she's like, even she's like, how many people when Trump got the nomination, that people who were so against Trump, when they realized, okay, he's he's the guy, he's the Republican dude. How many churches, how many pastors, how many conservative religious organizations were like, hmm, let's get behind him because he's our dude. Because it's so intertwined. And just like a lot of like Democrats will be like, we got to get behind, or like most may, uh, like Protestant mainline denominations are like, we got to get behind these Democrats because they're going to do that. I'm not saying that's inherently bad, but when we go back to the Bible, who did Jesus make fun of the most? Who did he have an issue with the most? The religious folk? and the political folk of his day. I think Jesus is giving us a clear kind of mandate to be like, mm, maybe don't hitch your horses to these political parties, to these religious people, because they don't always have the best intentions in mind. We can see what happens within, obviously, this rise of Trumpism. And so, uh, now we look at, and I don't have to be here, I could be here all day, I should say, of all the horrible, hateful, vile things that Trump had said, uh, has said, and probably and continues to say. But I remember when that tape came out uh, that, what is it, uh, a number of years ago where, yeah, well, yeah, in essence, that sex tape where somebody from a news thing interviewed him, it was a hot mic, where literally Trump was like, oh, yeah, you can literally force yourself onto her, doesn't matter if you're married or not, you know, grab a woman by the, you know what, and I thought when he said that, I'm like, dude, his whole thing is over. Like, it's just over. There's no way in the world that evangelical Christians could vote for a, a person like that. And mind you, he was like, oh, Hillary with the Benghazi tapes and all that stuff. Yeah, I have, I have problems with that. But this is, a, this is a group of people who will say we're voting someone in because of their moral. The moral majority, the religious right, it's all about these morals to these people. But yet, and what she brings up too, you you voted a person in who has no morals. Literally, he has no morals. He'll say he does, but you can we all as Americans have saw what happened the last previous four years with him. He has no morals. He is on a lot of ways like Driscoll, like no one's over him. He has no, like, yes, he has people over him, but he doesn't allude to that. And so, kind of wrapping up, it's interesting that we see this evangelical rise to, you know, let's keep everything pure. Let's keep everything moral. Sexually, let's keep everything pure. That was their whole shtick. But yet, 
they voted probably the worst person in as president. And this is what I find fascinating in so many ways with the evangelical movement is you will go tell people who are very moral, who are like, whether I agree with them or not, who are very um, stick to their guns of like gay marriage is wrong, sexual purity or modesty. We should have that. If that's what you want, that's fine. But how, how in the world did 81% of white evangelicals vote for a dude who was so vile, who was so against everything that they stand for? And when you ask evangelicals that to this day, they kind of will look at you and be like, huh? It's like they don't answer it. And like if someone, and I, I, I look at it and I have issues with the Bible. I've told you guys that numerous times. But it's like it says in the Bible, give an account, an adequate account of why you believe what you believe. That's anything. If someone's like, Brian, why do you believe what you believe? I'm going to say, okay, that's a very deep personal question. I'm going to answer that. But it's like these people aren't answering in that, you know? Like you're saying, why you have your morals, you have you, you think this is wrong or this is right, then why in the world did you vote this person in? And usually what it comes back down to was, well, they're not Democrats, or they're not this, or they're not that, or they're not this. And you're like, well, wait, you're this party of moralness or this, you know, being pure, but yet you voted in the worst person that has ever run under that ticket. It's just fascinating. And and that is another reason. I actually have a, a friend of mine, I won't say it, but if he watches, he knows who it is. The, reading this book and the rise of Trump is why he's no longer a Christian. And why and he was ordained in a liberal in a liberal denomination, but he walked away. He's now a secular humanist. He's card-carrying secular humanist because he was like I cannot be a part of Christianity. I wouldn't have done what he did per se, but I can understand why him and many others are walking away from any kind of Christianity because they were like, this This makes sense to you? Like, this horrible indoctrination of purity culture, this horrible moralness, but yet none of your people abide by it or agree to it? It's kind of like a parent. It's like, don't do what I do, do what I say. Well, that's terrible. You know, cause that, and that's exactly what a lot of these evangelical bigwigs are doing. They're like, don't do what I do, do what I say. Don't look behind the mirror or behind closed doors of what I'm doing. That's none of your business. But yet everything you do outside of or behind your closed doors is their business. And it's just highly fascinating at why the white evangelical church is that. And I would say that the people who are watching or will watch, and if you're evangelical, I'm not trying to poo-poo on you, but my question would be, why are you still part of an organization? Why are you still part of a Christianity that allows that, that doesn't ask questions. Um, Jesus makes it quite well in the New Testament. When you see bad things happening, stand up. Stand up, say something. Change it. Change the narrative. If we're not happy with it, change it. And I feel like the American church, and I can only speak as an American to the American church, we have a lot of growing up to do. We have a lot of inner workings that we have to do, not in, not just in our own personal lives, but just in the church landscape. And I just there was a statistic that I saw just come out from the Pew Research Group, which is, you know, very highly uh, reputable, is Gen Z 
and millennials. So Gen Z's after millennials, and we kind of joked before, uh, I'm a geriatric millennial. So at the beginning of the millennial movement, I know they, they say geriatric because, you know, for people in their 30s, it makes me. F- I know. I know. I don't like it. Okay. Elder millennial. Elder millennial. There we go. Okay. Hey, don't don't get mad at me. I'm not the one coming up with these terms. I'm just reporting. But what this statistics showed was since Trump got into office until now, it's been on a downward decrease, but it literally, it's like you see the graph and it just goes, woo, just like straight down of people leaving the evangelical church. But then you see every, like, I have so many friends that I went to college and seminary with who are doing church and evangelical churches. And they're like, why aren't people coming back? What, you know, is it the pandemic? Is it, is it people are scared? It's like, yeah, that could be a lot of it. But a lot of what it is, what people don't realize is people aren't buying what you're selling anymore. And I tell people all the time, the younger generation, these are, I would say, millennials and Gen Zs are like the first two generations in a long time that is calling out the bullshit and are sticking to their guns. They're like, I don't have a problem with Jesus. I have a problem with the church. I have a problem with your leadership. I have a problem with this because this Jesus that I read in the Bible is not the Jesus that you're worshiping right now. It is not the Jesus that you're telling people about. It's this weird politicized, uh, religiousized thing to get it in your perspective. And I would even say that to the liberal churches too. It's hard to just go into a church without some political, uh, what's the word, political turning point that they want or you got to vote this way or we got to do this we got to do this and it's it's not even about let's be better people let's love one another let's accept everyone how do we take care of the widow the orphan and the poor this is basic things that i feel like the scripture calls out especially jesus calls out in the new testament but all the churches are like we we need to align ourselves with these people we need to align ourselves with these people we need to align ourselves with this group and then it's like why why are we even a part of church why are we even a part of this community? And I don't know. I, 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 to be brutally honest, I struggle not with this community, but I just struggle when you know people are like, "Hey, I'm going to get up and I'm going to go to church today." And it's it could be a UCC church or Lutheran church. It could be a pe- Pentecostal church. And a part of me is like in the back of my head is like, "Why? Why do you want to go there? What What are they doing? What are they giving into your life that you don't already?" know or that you already don't do yourself you know like you don't have to be a moral person or or i should say you don't have to be a christian to be a moral person you you don't have to be you can be an atheist and be what i i know so many atheists who are probably way nicer who are more nicer than christians because they're like this is all we have this is the moment we have and it's just it's highly 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 frustrating and I'll wrap that up. I know I was kind of all over the board with it, but it's, I, after reading this book, I just, I can't, I just can't with evangelicalism anymore. And the last chapter, it's so funny, is it's called Mulligans. And the whole thing in there is like, yeah, you talk to evangelicals now and they're like, yeah, yeah, just give us a mulligan. And, you know, like, give us a do-over. And she's kind of saying, we can't, you can't, you just can't have a do-over especially when you put someone like Trump in office, you can't just be like, oops, sorry. And because, let's be be honest, a lot of evangelicals, they're still 
not all, but a lot of them are like, hey, Trump, Trump is still president. He didn't lose in 2020. Well, yes, he did. You know, we've talked about b- before we were recording a QAnon and other things like that, like other groups coming out, you know, people saying how Antifa is so evil. Well, all that Antifa stands for is anti-fascism. Okay. Um, QAnon literally is out there spreading things about how Trump never lost, like all these voting machines are rigged, like dead people voting. We're in a democracy where people vote by casting ballots, whether that's by mail or whether that's going to your local polling place. He lost. And he's still out now. Just this weekend, he had another thing where he was saying like how he didn't lose the election and all this stuff. And I want to say to my white evangelicals, why are you still behind this individual? Why are you still behind a party that is like, give us a mulligan, give us a do-over, however, you don't give that to anyone else. And the rest of the world, maybe Scotty can say this because he lives overseas, but as an American, the rest of the world looks at what Americans do. Hardcore. And a lot of Americans don't realize that. I don't care if you're an American in an urban city, you're a farmer, you're in a small town. People over in other parts of the or other parts of the world will, <coughs> excuse me, vehemently look at what we do. And I'm sure a lot of people over there are like, "Wait, what? Like, you guys are this supposed to be this really religious, open, free society, and yet you voted Trump in, who said on TV you, you can sexually abuse a woman without her." consent or anything and he still voted him in as a president and then you we we have another old white guy as a president now but then all the evangelicals and white people are saying how evil and vile he is for what he does anyway i could be here all day of the back and forth but i can see how so many people have walked away from the faith because of trump and and after reading this book, I realized, yeah, it's really easy to do that because the church has been so enamored with politics and so enamored with their whatever they're going to do. Anyway, enough said with that. The other announcement that or the announcement I'm going to make is and we've all agreed upon this as like a democracy, as I just talked about voting of of Revolution Church Minneapolis is going under a rebranding. And with that rebranding is we're having a different name that we're going to be going by. So we, our name, are you guys ready for this? Little drum roll. Our name is the Doubters Believers Alliance. And I want to say kudos to Curtis for coming up with that name. I love it. And everyone that I've talked to about it was like, yeah, that's really good. And so I have to give credit where credit is due to Curtis. We've all agreed on it. We all liked it. I have talked with Caleb about it um, just because I know he's so connected with Jay. and He's talked to Jay about it. And I've always had the okay from all them if we ever want to change the name. And I think one of the main reasons we want to change the name is... Well, a big reason, at least for me, is I don't want to be some, like, if we do stuff out in the community where people are like, oh, you're a church. Oh, like, you're, because church has such a negative connotation for so many. Look at what I just talked about the last two weeks. And 
I want to be a place because Curtis had asked me, well, what's our demographic? Who are the people we want to reach for whatever we do? And I, I remember saying one word, everyone. Everyone. Um, we have a comment coming in if someone can read that to me in a second. But but um, we want to vision and do stuff out in the community. And I know Revolution, when they were here and even out there, I'm not saying that they don't want to be out in their community more, but it's mostly like online church. Most people who watch are in, you know, wherever their respective communities are, online, overseas, wherever. But I feel like a lot of us, what we have said here over the last number of months is we want to be out in our community more. We want to be more civically engaged with the people around us, whether that's going to like pride, whether that's helping out in soup kitchens, whether that's just like, Curtis and I want to bring some bands in here. So we wanted to do this name change and we felt like if we, we want this dual, like this dualism of, cause not everyone who comes to revolution is a Christian and that's more than okay, but it's not here. And I've always told people, I don't ever want to convert people. I want to have conversations and that's where I, what I'm about. And I think that's what we're about. We want to have good conversations with people and I've said to people, I, I, I more call myself a Christian agnostic, which is another whole thing of, and I want to be able to come up here and talk to people in, you know, watching live or people here who are live in person. And I said, I don't necessarily want to come in and say, okay, today we're going to be reading out of James, blah, 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 blah. I want to be able to come up and be like, Hey, you know what? I read a good book on Buddhism. This is what I got out of it. Maybe this can help you. Um, I, I'm one of those people that I don't think God's truth is just found in the Bible. I think it can be found in a lot of other places. So I think coming up with doubters, believers is we want kind of our brand name or our, our, who we are as a community to say, Hey, some of us are doubters. Some of us don't, aren't Christians. Some of us are Christians, but we want to be, we want to show you not only can we have community with one another, but we want to have community with you. And we think that we're going to, that we can live into that. Um, so I'm going to, I'm saying that now. My goal is to, by August 1st, or that first Sunday in August, which I guess that's next week, um, is to, gosh, it's already August, is to just kind of, we'll go online and all that I have to do is just change the name on Facebook, change the name on Instagram. I'll probably make quick videos just to let people know. And another reason, too, is to be honest, uh, I've had a lot of lot of people in the last couple months since I took over. I shouldn't say a lot, but a fair share of people who have commented on our revolution, thinking that I was Jay or Caleb. And there's just a lot of confusion. I've had some people kind of come here while I was setting up, and they're like, "Oh, is this revolution?" And I'm like, "Yeah." They're like, "Where's Jay?" Uh, Jay moved like four months ago, five months ago, and then they never come back. And that's fine. I'm not going to tell anybody they have to come here, but. It's just, I feel like if we rebrand ourselves and redo all this and kind of put ourselves out there, then people are going to know like, oh, this used to be a revolution. Now it's them, but we're still all the same people. So all that being said, I want to, I have one comment that came in from Ray. Uh, you wrote, I can't get all of it, but it says, I'm sorry, but I think it's a, uh, it's a common misguided thing that the U.S. perspective to think the rest of the world is looking as a, at America. Can anybody finish see that? The rest, I don't know why I can't. It's just true. We do watch. 
but that's just because it's the biggest stage, not because of admiration. Right. No, I agree. The rest of the world doesn't watch us wanting to be like us. And maybe I didn't say that, but the rest of the world does watch us. Yes, Ray, because we're a big, we're the biggest stage, but maybe not from where you're from, maybe not in parts of Europe or parts of like Asia or parts of South America. I'm not saying people watch us because they want to be like us or have all the same things. But a lot of people watch us because they're like, Oh, if something happens in America and it's okay, then it can happen here or maybe it will happen. And one thing I will say to Scotty, you were saying with Trumpism, with Trump winning a lot of parts of the world, especially in Europe where you brought up, uh, you see um, the rise of the right far right movement. Like you saw the far right movement in France uh, like whatever her name is, Le Pen or whatever, like she has a far religious right movement. Um, you even said in Switzerland that there's a huge far right movement that's never gone. And that with Trump winning it somehow to them or like, OK, now now it's OK for us to do that. Here's the crazy thing is like religious. Right. So you have this black movement on. What was this process movement that aligned itself with, with Trump? Um, and they're actually atheists. Mm-hmm. And they caught on, you know, they had a lot of followers through, throughout Europe. Yeah. So, and Ray just wrote back, okay, fair enough. No, that was good. And I'm sorry, Ray, if I didn't specify that better. I'm not saying that they're watching the world because they want to be like us, but watching the world, watching us because we are the bit. Yeah, just the alt right. So, I would say a lot of countries outside of America, when they see certain political parties gain a lot more power and strength here, that lets them know, hey, if that's okay in America, why can't it be okay in our country or whatever? Because these far-right groups or hate groups have never disappeared. They're always waiting so they can pounce when kind of it's okay for them to do it. Um, I'm going to wrap up. Anybody has any other questions, thoughts? We can talk afterwards, too. you want to? So one thought that I had is because, like, it's you see, like, a lot, you know, it's clearly a big issue in the white community. Christians of color from denomination of the outside, we were looking and going, what the heck is this? It was a phenomenon because, like, black churches for example, we're speaking out very vocal against Trumpism. And so, you know, and then when I look at people leaving the faith, I'm wondering, I'm like, okay, but then I wonder if this is something inherent in white evangelicalism, that it convinces you that white evangelicalism is the church and denominations outside of it that are of color or, you know, or or different, you know, spectrums where, where they're just not true Christianity. Because I, I, I often challenge white evangelicals to leave to say, well, you want justice and all these things, you know, and, and it's great. But the black church up the street has been preaching that for years. The Asian church up the road is the Hispanic church. You're talking about children at the border before it became a, a, a cool thing. Hispanic churches were at the border with migrant workers and handing water across. So why don't you go to these communities? And I sometimes think that white evangelicals who leave still have but still have this mind they still haven't fully escaped it you know because i'm like 
and Esau McCulley, who wrote Reading While Black, wrote um, said this. He was like, you know, okay, so you leave, but why don't you consider the churches of color? Why is it just white evangelical, and that's it? So, yeah, this is a uh, yeah, it's just a point. I'm gonna end it here just so Caleb can parse this together. We can still continue the conversation, but um, yeah, I, hopefully everyone liked the talk today. Um, we are just, I, my point is in some of the questions and thoughts that were said here too are very poignant. I think very important. I love this community. I'm just going to say that I, I love it with all my heart. Um, but we're also changing, like I said, we're changing our name. So be on the lookout for that. Um, if you're ever in town, we would love to see you here face to face. And yeah, anything that's changing and, and when we're out in the community, we'll let everyone know. So till next week. Oh, and next week we're having a special speaker, uh, AKA Scotty is going to be talking. And I said, how cool would it to be on your resume that you got to preach in a bar in a restaurant? So all that being said, so tune in um, next week and have a great, great day, everyone. And be safe. Bye.